Hello, you're listening to the Up Spiral Leadership Podcast with your hosts, Poe Chu, Rebecca Breitling, and Sue Covelli-Buntley. This podcast is dedicated to helping leaders at all levels to think bigger, act bolder, and collaborate better in order to create positive change even when it's hard. Join us as we explore journeys toward a world where everyone is running to co-create a better future because they feel valued, inspired, and connected. Hello, everyone. This is Rebecca Breitling, and I'm here with my partner, Sue Cavelli-Buntley, and we are very excited to introduce our guest for today, John O'Grady. We met John actually not too long ago at the Leadership Forum Community, which is an organization that we've been members of since 2016, but one of the longest running leadership conferences in the country. And I was fortunate enough to have been put into a breakout group with John, where we were discussing how do we incubate leadership? during these uncertain and challenging times. And I was so drawn to John's leadership and his focus on humanity. And John, I was just really impressed with even your career. I think just in a matter of a short few minutes, you had shared with me your career in both as a division one athlete, your love and passion for sports. I saw as I do now, the football behind you and the helmet behind you. And you can share a little bit more with us about that. And I also heard you talk about your career in the military as a leader in the military leading teams and now as a leadership coach for both sports coaches as well as business leaders. So thank you so much for being here, John, today. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. And thanks to uh, your listeners. Thank you. Yes. Well, my listeners are in for a treat today because we definitely want to hear a lot about your your wisdom as a leader and how you exemplify upspiral leadership, which we talk about all the time with our clients about how can we think bigger, act bolder, and collaborate better. And so we'd love to hear just a little bit about your story, John, if you could share with our listeners about the journey that you've taken as a leader from starting off you know, in, as a Division One athlete and the military academy to now actually coaching other leaders. Yeah. So uh, again, thanks. And, and thank you all as well for what you do in the leadership space. It's, Lord knows it's vitally important. And I, and I really uh, believe there's a leadership deficit uh, going on in the world right now. And so anything folks can do in terms of uh, helping to cultivate some value-based leadership is, is vitally important. So, so again, thanks. And thanks for having me. And thanks to your listeners for tuning in. You know, simply put, my leadership journey went from thinking I knew everything to realizing I knew nothing to a point now where I think I know enough that I'm willing to share. Um, that, that, that would probably be the summation of it. But it did start, it really started before West Point, quite frankly. It started in a small little cul-de-sac in Long Island, New York in a house uh, with my mom and dad, uh, who were high school graduates. Um, and my dad, you know, uh, the only reason he was a high school graduate is because my mom helped him get through high school. Uh, at least that's how the story went. And in that community, uh, I was a younger brother. So there was two of us. So I was about three years younger. And it was really all about sports and, and various forms of competition. Because, you know, in those days, it was, hey, you know, get outside, go play with your friends, um, and then come back home, you know, when the, when the street lights are going on, if you think you want dinner. If not, then fine. Yeah, don't come back. Um, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I had very loving parents, but that was kind of the context that we grew up in. But in that, 
those were the earliest lessons learned in that cul-de-sac, in the backyards, in the elementary school playgrounds and sports, you know, fields, you know, you just started learning fundamental principles mm. about leadership and that I didn't even realize at the time, you know, you figured out that the two biggest, best kids always get to pick the teams. You had to figure out, you know, oh, oh by the way, there's usually like one or two kids who kind of are always getting picked last. And how do you how do you keep them motivated to keep coming back? Because it's not like you're going to find more kids out of nowhere, right? And so things like motivating everybody to want to continue to participate, even though they're the ones always getting picked last. You know, the conflict resolution. It was a touchdown. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Well, then fine. I'm leaving. Well, if you leave, so how are we going to navigate our way through that? And everything in between. And then fast forward to West Point that many people refer to as the ultimate leadership institution in the world. And and I tend to believe there's some truth to that, not to suggest we have the market on it and that others don't do leadership development well, but there's probably no place where that's done more with more intention and attention Mm. than West Point. And then... I go into the military, you know, and again, that's all about leadership. We are judged by fundamentally by two things, how we lead and how well we develop other leaders because Mm. for our survival, it's critical to lead well and build strong teams. And we also realize that from the moment people enter the military, we have to continue to develop and grow our own leaders from that moment on because it's not like we're going to just pick up somebody off the street and have them enter our organization at a mid-level management position or a senior executive position. You know, if you're a GE, hey, you get the headhunting firm, you're looking for your new CEO, you bring somebody in off the streets, great. Don't work that way in the Army. And so it, we have a vested interest in how well we develop other leaders. And so that, that, that was pretty much, you know, a little bit of my leadership journey. And, and, and thankfully, I've had the opportunity to literally train my entire adult life on how to lead people through not only peacetime, but combat. And, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, I had the opportunity to lead in combat as well. So I just, you know, an incredible wealth of experience that you get from 1824 Etna Place, America, New York, cul-de-sac, to the, to the uh, ball fields of uh, Division One intercollegiate lacrosse, to the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and everything in between. And, and, you know, just look to share that now with folks so that they can be the best version of themselves. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that, John. And it's really fascinating on so many levels. It connects so much to what we also believe about leadership and how really leadership starts and like in your youth, right? That our mindset and our beliefs about how we see the world and how we can contribute to the world really start at such a young age. So that's really amazing to hear how that journey started for you. I'm I'm curious to hear like now you mentioned being on the battlefields, you know, as we're living in this moment of where we are experiencing a pandemic a health crisis around the world, and we are um, experiencing a fight against racial injustice and and multiple injustices. It's 
you know, such an interesting time. And I think for so many people, they feel like right now we're, we're at battle. So as a leader, just in terms of your own story, and for our listeners out there who might be struggling and not sure how to lead themselves and lead others, what advice can you impart with our listeners based on the experiences you've had in your life? Yeah, great question. You know, so the first thing I would offer is one where you're not alone, right? And, and, and that can be comforting in and of itself. You know, I mean, and, and I have to remind myself of this time to time. And so, you know, whether it was in moments when I was in combat, you know, I had to remind myself that, hey, look, I'm, I'm not the first person to be, you know, be doing this, quite frankly, you know, and as, as long as humans have been on the face of this earth, there has been some form of combat, right? It, you know, and just having that perspective of like, okay, so I'm not alone in the, in, in, in the expanse of humanity. I'm right. not alone. I recognize it can feel lonely at times. Right, but taking that step back and realizing that just even in the current context, I'm not alone. And then if you take the entirety of the expanse of humanity from its beginning to now and going forward, you know, now that's just exponential. And so I found that to be a little comforting, uh, quite frankly, and helped me to get a little better perspective. Uh, and I even just used that recently. I mean, so I just literally today is my first day as a, as a retiree from the United States army. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Yes. That's great. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And so, you know, even leading up to this, you know, a little bit of angst, a little bit, you know, it's a transition. It's a big, yeah. big better. And, you know, I, I would have some of those natural feelings of, of, uh, anxiety, worry, doubt, you know, and then I just would remind myself, Hey, approximately 200,000 service members depart the military service each year. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay, right? I, I'm, I'm with a good group. You know? uh, so, so there's that aspect of it. The other aspect that uh, I would offer is in this current context, uh, people are, are uh, they feel feelings of fear. Right? Yeah. Again, that's, a na- it's okay. that's a natural feeling. But what I would offer is there's a distinct difference between fear and danger. Danger is real, right? And you have to acknowledge something that is dangerous, that has a level of danger associated with it. And you have to still, you know, be able to confront that and navigate it, et cetera. But fear is, is predominantly what we make it inside of our own beings, Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily based on reality. And so when you're having these feelings of fear, again, take a step back and ask yourself, is that fear based on an actual danger or is it based off of something, a narrative that I'm telling myself or that I'm allowing myself to be fed? And when you, when you parse those two things out, again, it helps give a little bit of perspective. And then the last thing I would say is if you're, if you're in a leadership position, and we, we all are in many ways if we think about it, I, I fundamentally believe everybody's a leader. The only question is how effective are you and is it, is it for positive impact or negative impact? But everybody's a leader. So you don't get to hide out in some safe space where you, you can do what you want, act with how you want, say what you want. And somehow be like, well, I'm not a leader, so it doesn't really matter. No, no, there is no place to hide in that space. You don't get that vibe. But just look at other leaders throughout the expanse, again, of, of, of time. You know, you take a Winston Churchill, 
a Franklin Delano Roosevelt type, you know, kind of put yourself in their shoes. I mean, you know, we're talking about the world as we know it, right? Democracy as we knew it, freedoms and, and, and times of great uncertainty, times of great peril. And, and how did they navigate through that? And so finding some different examples that you can gravitate towards and latch on to can also be helpful in, in that period of time. So those would be just some things. And, and really, you know, fundamentally, as I, as I draw a thread between all of that, it's, it's about perspective and it's about realizing that, that this isn't the first time. It won't be the last time. And no matter how bad you think things are, You've already survived whatever the previous really bad thing was in, that you thought mm-hmm. was happening in your life that it could never get any worse, right? So take a little comfort in that too and have a little confidence in yourself as well that you'll be able to navigate through this. No, that's, that's great advice. And we too agree that leadership, everyone is a leader. So I'm so glad that you shared that. And you also really shared some good tips on how we can think bigger. So as our audience is thinking about the circumstances that they're each facing today, how can they really think bigger so they can create a better reality? So that's really fantastic advice, John. You know, you also touched upon something about false narrative or or knowing yourself. You kind of talked about like the mental models that we have and how we sort of create a story in our mind when we experience fear. And we had asked you some questions before the podcast just in preparing for it. And you talked about in your response about how some of what may have held you back in your own career, in your own life was not knowing yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that for our audience and and how that impacted you and your leadership? Yeah. Um, So, you know, again, I don't have all the answers and I'm I'm still on this journey uh, of learning and and understanding uh, myself better. Because once I realize, once as the more I, I understand myself and the better I understand myself, the better I'm able to understand others, to empathize with others and connect with others, right? And so there's a selfishness to it. I'll just, you know, I'll be honest about it. But it's an unselfish selfishness, uh, mm-hmm. I like to refer to it as. And so um, I'll, I'll just give you two quick examples. So I talked about my childhood, right, and some of the lessons I learned. Well, one of the things that I learned through all of those uh, experiences as a young, you know, male was about competition. And it seemed like all my play, whether it be tag, kill the guy with the ball, touch football, you know, races, just, you know, whatever it was, it was all about competition. And in that regard, one of the things in this journey of exploration of myself, I realized was much later in life from far removed from 1824 at the place was that a false narrative of what it really means to be a man in today's Mm. society. And it's not necessarily done purposely, but it is nonetheless done. And it is a almost silent false narrative that we continue to pass on to men and and women in our society of what it means to be a male. And what I figured out was that competition was at the root of it. And the way you, you, the way you establish yourself as a man was through competition. And it came down to essentially a couple of things here. It was, so I'm either going to have a greater physical prowess 
over you, often defined through sports and other forms of competition. I'm going to make more money than you or sexual prowess, quite frankly, mm -hmm. right? Now, when you th think about the, those false narratives that start getting fed in, that that's the way I can, I, can, I, I can measure myself as a man. That's the way I can stake my claim in the hierarchy of my social fabric and community. That immediately puts men in competition with not only one another, but with just about everybody and everything. Mm -hmm. That's kind of screwed up a little bit. And, and you know, if you, I, could, I could draw some clear lines from that false narrative to some of the many troubling things we have going on in our society and have for quite some time. So, so that would be one kind of false narrative, self-limiting belief that took me a long time to get past what it means. And, and now what I really understand it means to be a man is deep, meaningful relationships, helping other people. It's not about competition. It's about making the pie bigger, right? It's about bringing people along. It's about standing up for other people, not putting people down as an example. Another example that I'll give is, and it's, it's highly topical right now, given um, a lot of the social unrest going on, is for the longest time, so for your listeners out there, I am a white, I identify as a, as a Caucasian, male, and Catholic, heterosexual, those four things. That's how I identify. I believe that's who I am. I understand and I believe that because of that, that I hit the mega lottery in terms of DNA. Notice I didn't say necessarily choice, although religion is, is and remains a choice for me. Uh, but those other three things are, you know, part of my DNA, I believe. That's, that's my thoughts. And so I used to get really frustrated with this notion of like, you know, white male privilege. Because I'm like, hey, look, I work my you know what off to, to get everything that I ever had in my life. I can remember going to the office building with my mom, dad, and brother after we ate dinner, which ended up being one of these, we call them upside down dinners because it would be take the leftovers, throw mm -hmm. it into an omelet of some sort and eat yeah. it. And at the time I didn't realize it, but that was to make ends meet. And then we would eat that dinner and we would go clean office buildings three nights a week as a family. Right. So that just gives you a little glimpse into my my background. And then, you know, it was probably a statistical anomaly that I made it into West Point. I'm a statistical anomaly making it out of West Point. And so while you could look at me and it looks like I've got this very privileged background um, and I grew up in a good neighborhood. Don't get me wrong, but we were we were we were constantly fighting to stay in the low, low end of that socioeconomic neighborhood, too. I used to be really bothered about this notion of like white male privilege. Until again, I, you know, let my ego go a little bit. And what I realized when people say that, what I take that to mean now is it's not about the things that I have or the things that I was given. It is about every single thing that I never, ever had to worry about as a white, male, Catholic, heterosexual. I never had to worry about if my religious holidays neatly nested with my work holidays. Never had to worry about it. 
never had to think about it, never had to figure out how to get the family together in those times to celebrate the way we wanted to celebrate. I never had to worry about the joke that starts with, hey, a white heterosexual guy walks into a bar. I never had to worry about what, how that would make me feel in a work environment. I never had to worry about putting photos of my family in my office and somebody making, you know, maybe seeing what that was and, and, and maybe then making a decision about whether I would get promoted or not based off of who was in that photo as my partner, as an example, right? I never, I, so you know, when you start stacking up all these things in my life, when I actually started looking at it through that lens, I mean, it's, it's staggering the, the lack of worry that I've had in my life. And then once I realized that and I flipped it on the other side and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I, I look at my daughter. I'm like, all the things that she has to worry about mm-hmm. that, that I never, never even crossed my mind. And so, I, you know, John. That's what that is. That, to me now, that's when I hear that phrase, I don't get bothered anymore. I'm like, yeah. And thank you. I am thankful, but what can I do so that those people, that group, those groups of people who don't fit into that category don't have to worry. So, yeah, I was going to ask you just that, like, as you now have this greater awareness, I mean, you really are thinking bigger now, as you described, as you went through, have gone through your journey in life. And as a leader, it sounds like you really have expanded your awareness and your level of consciousness about the impact about who you are, what you stand for, and what you appreciate about others. And it's really fascinating um, because we talk about courageous civility and how today what we really need is to lead with courageous civility. And part of what we define as courageous civility is really knowing what you stand for. So knowing who you are, but also appreciating what others stand for and who they are so that we could rise up to stand up to be who we are, to speak up for those things we believe in, and also to join together with others to create positive change. So that's how we define courageous civility. And you've just touched upon the first two activators. And I'm really curious to hear when you talk about having this awareness now, how is that translating into action for you? And for our listeners, as they start to become more aware how can we move from awareness into action so that we truly can make this more than just a moment, but really create sustainable, positive change? Yeah, no, great question. So this is something that I've worked on, you know, uh, as you might imagine, for a while, you know, just again, using the backdrop of the current, you know, societal unrest. As I go, as I went into organizations that I led, um, the number one thing that I focused on was inclusion. And so you hear diversity and inclusion a lot. Well, in my organization, in the Army, right, the the Army decided, you know, what my team was made up of by how it recruited. And the Mm -hmm. Army recruited across the entirety of America. And so, and and outside, you know, I mean, well, you know, I mean, Puerto Rico, uh, Philippines, but, you know, there are even some people who were, you know, uh, born in other countries and, and, you know, now we're naturalized citizens as an example that I had in, in, in my organizations from time to time. Whether that be a 20-person organization all the way up to a 3,500-person organization that I led. 
Uh, so I already had the diversity. I didn't have to seek diversity, quite frankly. But, you know, I think there's a lot of organizations and, and places where leaders don't have to necessarily seek out that diversity either. But to me, the whole conversation should be about inclusion. And here's why I say that. You know, you take today's current situation, and it's, it's, it's very focused on racism. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because we do have major problems in our society as it relates to that. But that's not, that's wholly insufficient, quite frankly, because I seem to recall about six to nine months ago, the big ism was sexism. And, and then if you go six to nine to 12 months before that, I recall there was a rash of anti-Semitic hatred going on in various parts in our country with synagogues being um, vandalized and, 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 and um, cemeteries with uh, you know, Jewish uh, people um, vandalized and some other horrific activities, right? And so, you know, we just keep spinning this freaking roulette wheel, quite frankly, bouncing from one ism to the next ism. And, and, and it actually plays into the hands of the people who don't want actual change because they just wait, they know, they know it's just a matter of time before the nexism takes the place and we'll, we'll forget about the previous one. And uh, they also know that it's easy to just deal with one of those things at any one time. Well, imagine if we just elevated it to inclusion. Mm -hmm. Imagine if we just elevated the entire conversation to how do we create a culture, a society of inclusivity versus exclusion. And when you start thinking about it that way, what you realize is exclusion is about fear, ultimately. So if you want an organization, and I'll go back to my military experience, of inclusion, you have to do two things fundamentally. You have to raise self-awareness of everybody inside the organization. And there's, there's ways you can go about doing that. You have to also create a culture of trust. And there's ways to go about doing that too with intention and purpose. Because then ultimately with those two things, you enhance the possibility of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, you can actually begin to have a culture of inclusion and not one of exclusion. And inclusion is a right. Inclusivity does not have to be earned. It should never have to be earned. It's a right. And the only caveat I'd ever put on that is if somehow your sense of inclusivity uh, would, would some way, um, you know, uh, create harm for, for another human being or yourself, that then that's the, you know, that's a, okay, red line. We got to kind of deal with that separately. And so that's how I've approached it. Not my entire adult life, clearly again. And, you know, I'm always constantly learning, uh, or I like to think I am, but inclusion should be the singular thing we're talking about versus any specific ism. Uh, or any cousin of any ism that's founded in hate and fear. Yeah, that that's 
so great. And you're definitely speaking our language. <laughs> Everything you're Absolutely. talking about is what we talk about with intention, like leading with intention, being really intentional and building trust and, and really developing that psychological safety. We know from all of our research, and I'm sure you know this from your work as well, that what teams that have psychological safety, they back each other up, they feel safe and trusting of each other are the teams that perform the best. So there's, there are actually concrete bottom line results there. It impacts the bottom line in terms of productivity, innovation, engagement. So it definitely is the driver of that. But I'm curious because I I know for a lot of our listeners, they may be thinking, or I'm assuming they may be thinking, because I've heard this from other people, like that sounds great. But how realistic is that? And what do we do when the people around us may not feel the same way? So what we're hearing is a lot of people are holding back from speaking up and from sharing their voice, or they're only really demanding incremental change because they don't believe that transformational change is possible. So I'm curious from your point of view, how how can our listeners address or, or be bold enough? How can they act bolder and collaborate better to create positive change if possibly there's the people around them may not be those champions or they may face some, or they may fear, right? They may fear they're facing circum negative consequences. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a very contextual question, right? So it's, it's really hard to pinpoint one specific thing. But at the end of the day, what I would just offer is make, what, make the change you can make and be the change that you can be, right? And keep working at it too. And realize that your context today doesn't have to be your context tomorrow or next year or three years from now, right? Think of it as more of a journey than an event, and, and if you think of it as a journey and you're constantly moving towards that, that place of, you know, making things better, it, it's amazing the, the, the power of time in that journey. You know, we, we often, I think, are looking for the big thing, you know, but stacking a, stacking a thousand micro things gets you to a big thing. And so maybe just take those little micro wins that you can Um, And then lastly, I'd just say, you know, if you find yourself in a situation, you know, where you don't feel where you can be really your authentic self, you know, as part of your journey, keep keep looking for the place that you can. And I I realize that, you know, hey, look, I I may have to just put up with this for now because it's what's feeding the family, you know, and I I understand that too. So I'm not some idealistic person that just, you know, says, hey, you know, you and your family put them in a triple corrugated cardboard box, quit your job today and hope for the best. You know, that's, that's not, that's not in my DNA. Um, I'm not, you know, disparaging anybody who's, who has that in their DNA. It's just not in mine. Yeah, that's great advice. John, that is so great. And this is so incredibly inspiring. And, and one of the things that you said, and I think this is great advice for myself and for all of our listeners is that it's those little, sometimes we have to start off with the stacking those small things because that's what we have most control over right now. And they turn into big things because of the ripples that happen in the world. And when you said, you know, be the change, that's one of my favorite quotes is be the change you wish to see in the world. Because once, once we change ourselves, we, we free up other people to do the same. And that's where, that's probably where the biggest transformations occur. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, And speaking of quotes, we were uh, looking at one of your many blogs 
uh, and becoming very inspired. And one of the quotes that you said, we wanted just to give you a, a couple of minutes to give us a little bit more context around because it was really inspiring to us. And it was, and hopefully I'm getting it right, so you could fix it for me if I'm getting it wrong, but it was, love your future self as much or more as you do your current self. So tell us a little bit about what, you know, what, what is the context behind that quote and what does that mean to you and what advice can you give to our listeners in relation to it? Because it struck a chord with us. Sure. You know, I think really at the crux of it all is it's ultimately just a a tool, if you will, to help in, in terms of decision making, right? And, and especially kind of the moral, ethical kind of, you know, decision making where, where maybe things aren't necessarily black and white. Mm-hmm. And just in, in that moment when you're, when you're struggling with that, when you have that dissonance going on, either emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, over that situation and that you find yourself in, just ask yourself when you take that action, make sure you're, you're doing it where you're going to love your future self yeah. for having done that yeah. or not done something as you do your, your current self. Because it's easy in the moment to rationalize things because it feels good in the moment or it feels safe in the moment. But, you know, looking back on it, you know, a year from now, 10 years from now, you know, when your kids are asking you one day about what your actions were or were not during a particular time over the course of your life, will you love your future self? Will you, will you be in that moment and, and say, you know what, I, I, I love myself for that decision just as much as I did when I made it. And, um, I just find that as a good way to help people navigate through some of those difficult decisions and ultimately more times than not, you know, land on the better choice, the one that that, uh, calls to the better nature of our, of our angels, so to speak. Yes. We love love that. that. What a great way to think bigger uh, because if you can have that vision for yourself, it's a really good guidepost to make decisions. And I was also thinking that, it helps people get through some really tough times because mm-hmm. one of the things that people are struggling with right now in relation to everything that you're talking about is, you know, our battling with fear and our anxiety and the mental health that's going on. And what a great vision if we could just fall in love with our future self, because that's going to help us get through today. Because mm-hmm. sometimes today it's hard, you know, it's hard to, it's even if it's hard to love ourselves today, let's have a vision of ourselves in the future that we can fall in love with and let's chase that. And yeah. that was, the, that was the inspiration you gave to me when I read that quote. And it actually, you know, had me sit up a little straighter in my chair and like, you know what, that is such a great way for me to move on and to be better okay. uh, because it can always be better. So I'm going to chase that future me and I'm going to try to, I'm going to fall in love with that future me and I'm going to chase that person. And but John, know, I, yes. I found I, I, I personally need things like that, right? And yeah, so, yeah. So, hey, look, I, yeah. I know, uh, you know, I'm not sure how I sound or I'm coming off right now to your, to your listeners, you know, like, I, I, you know, maybe I'm some kind of, you know, oracle on top of the mountain or something. But all of this stuff has come from the worst parts of me, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those moments where I do look back at decisions that I've made and I think to myself, my God really, man, really, 
is that really who you were in that moment? Is that who you want to be going forward? And and if the answer is no, then then what do you get? What things are you pragmatically going to do, or what things do you need to help yourself? And so that phrase was born out of out of that type of reflection. Oh, that I often use. I mean, and this is like, I mean, these are conversations I'm having with myself, literally. Right. I, I will I will stop and ask myself, will I love my future self as much as I do, you know, my current self right. um, in this moment? The other one I use is, um, if you were tried, would you be convicted? It's a mm. question I ask myself. Oh. Right? So we all have this narrative of who we tell ourselves we are. We all have this narrative of who we tell others we are, right? Okay, well, when the time really comes, if you were tried of that, would, of who you say you are, mm-hmm. would you really be convicted? You know, what, what evidence are you going to bring forward of, of that? And, okay. and that's another good way of kind of just anchoring yourself each and every day in terms of reflection you know, and that's not an exercise in, you know, beating yourself up if I stretch your imagination. That's not what I'm suggesting. But it, it's just a way, again, to tr- kind of ele- elevate yourself. And as you all, fit, you know, state, you know, think bigger, act bolder, and, and collaborate better. Well, that's, those are two ways that I kind of collaborate with myself. Right. Uh, so that I can think, think bigger, hopefully, and act bolder. <laughs> right. Well, and it, it is bold to be able to acknowledge where you're at and where you have opportunities to be able to create change. So, and it takes that vulnerability, it takes boldness. Yeah. So, um, and that's exactly why we came up with that because it really starts with your mindset, right? Going well, to what you right. said. And then if you can think bigger and see that opportunity, then you can really rise up to be bolder, to take action. And then you said it so beautifully before, if you, if you know yourself, then you can actually see that good in others. And that's where you can really start to join with them to create change. So that's beautiful. I was going to say, we would love to invite you to participate in our lightning round, which is a series of of questions that we want to ask to really just to get to know you. On, on a deeper level and in sort of a fun way. So Sue, I'll turn it over to you to share our lightning round with John. Curious to learn more about you. Absolutely. So lightning round, these are questions that will ask you fairly quick and you're free to give some quick answers. So that that's why it's called lightning. <laughs> um, but they're, but they're good questions. So feel free, you know, go as deep as you like, because I think that your, your responses just based on our conversation so far are going to be really powerful. Uh, so are you ready, John? I'm ready. Hit me. Okay. Here's the lightning. What leadership trait does the world need most today? Yeah, I would say three things. And it's, it's a foundational in, in the best leaders that I've ever, ever come across and had the privilege to serve and work with. And that would be the, the humility, recognizing you don't know it all by any stretch of the imagination, and you never will, quite frankly. So be comfortable with that too. Curiosity, though, to try to know it all, even though you realize you won't, and courage, the courage to have both of those things and actually act on those things. Love it. Great answer. And I think you gave examples of those throughout this conversation. Uh, second question, who do you know that best models these traits and why? Yeah, um, again, I've been incredibly fortunate to be around unbelievable 
leaders, uh, and so I could I could go on and on and on. But some uh, one was uh, General Martin Dempsey, who was my uh, commanding general in the First Armored Division, uh, my first deployment to uh, Iraq. Coach Joe Alvarici of Army West Point Lacrosse. You know, so if, if you're a listener out there and, and, and your son uh, plays lacrosse, I can think of no better person to hand uh, your son over to than, than Coach Joe Alvarici in that individual's journey into adulthood. And uh, a former Army lacrosse teammate of mine, Adam Silva, who really opened my eyes to that whole false narrative of manhood that I talked about earlier and really what it means to be a man. Uh, so those would be three people I think that come to mind, um, you know, outside of my family. Excellent. Thank you for honoring all those leaders and the leaders on your family because they're all leaders, which is great. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do you believe that almost no one else believes? Give trust freely. Don't ask for it to be earned up front, you know, and, and I'll expand on that just a little bit if I can. You know, you think about it, we get on an airplane, right? You know, and you don't yeah. know the pilot, you don't know the person, the crew yeah. members who, who, you know, inspected the plane. You don't know the person who is supposed to update the software patch to make sure that it all works well. Yet we get on there and you take a second to think about it. You basically trust your life. Absolutely. Right? With all these people you have, you don't know and you'll never know. Yet in our most meaningful relationships, whether it be family or professional, personal, we, we flip the script. And we, we tell everybody in those, in those instances, you've got to earn my trust. Right. Yes. I mean, that just, so, that. you know, it took me a while to come, come upon that one too, but, um, and that's not easy to do. I still struggle with it, but I'll be yeah. honest with you, because it doesn't feel safe. Mm. You know, it's the first step to cultivating trust. Well, I even love that analogy, just even the, the flying analogy, because imagine if, mm-hmm. we gave, if we gave trust freely, how we could fly together. Uh, so that's great. Yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what is the wildest, this is one of my favorite questions, what is the wildest idea you've ever shared with others? Yeah, I don't know if this is the wildest, but, you know, in, instead of uh, an open door policy, Right, which most organizations very proudly, oh, I've got an open door policy. <laughs> like, that's that's nice, mildly interesting, quite frankly. But you know, tell me, you know, what if you had an open mind and an open heart policy? What would that? I be? love that. What would wow. that do for your organization? I think that might favorite. have to be an up spiral Monday post. I, I think you're right. <laughs> and we will quote you. We actually, we're probably, you know, we could just quote you for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and <laughs> and we would right. be happy campers, but, 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 but that's great. Okay, last lightning round, and then I'll turn it over to Rebecca to wrap up. Uh, although I wish we could talk to you forever. But what is your biggest wish for the world right now? Mm, love. You know, it's that old song, what the world needs now, right? Um, Love. And and by love, you know, lots of times we associate love with like, you know, this warm, fuzzy feeling and Valentine's Day cards and, you know, and, 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 and that's a part of it. But really the way I define love is ultimately wanting what is best for someone, you know, and and wanting what is in their best interest. Right. And, Mm. You know, you got to be careful with that because in some regard, like, well, who, who are you to know what, what's in my, you know, what's best for me and what's in my best interest? You know, well, you know, we could all use a little help in that journey, right? But if you accept that notion that love is wanting what is best for someone, 
And really what love means is that you are willing to both stand up for someone, but also stand up to them. So stand up for them, but also stand up to them and hold them accountable. So, you know, when, when you see them doing something that maybe isn't in their best interest or going to be in their best interest, or at least the likelihood is, is very high that it's not in their best interest. You know, and if we all just took that perspective in terms of love and, and came from that genuine place of wanting what is best for one another, you know, I, I think we'd be going a long way towards getting to the place where, where we'd like to be. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. And it really goes back to what you said earlier about intention. If you set an intention in love and you share that with someone to let them know right up front that you have their best interests at heart, then whatever you say or do afterwards is going to honor that intention. And it's going to build that trust right from the beginning. So that is fantastic, fantastic advice. So John, just to wrap up, our last question is really about the flip. So Mm -hmm. one of the strategies we teach is about to think bigger, you, we need, all need to be able to flip limiting and negative beliefs into something that's more empowering and that will serve us better. So we wanted to share with you a limiting belief that we oftentimes hear and hear how you may flip that. So the limiting belief is our differences pull us apart. Yeah, well, it, that is true. <laughs> they do. The, I think the one word I would come up with is community, right? And that's common plus unity equals community and recognizing really that there's more that binds us together than actually separates us. And if we'd focus on that sense of community, that common unity would be far better off and maybe we would uh, be able to flip the notion of our differences pulling us apart. Fantastic. That is a wonderful thought to leave us with as we wrap up this podcast. John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. For our listeners, we will be posting information about John and his organization, his company. If you are interested in learning more about John and reading his blogs and interested in working with John, we welcome you to to stay connected to John. Thank you so much, John, for your time. And we look forward to staying connected with you. Thanks Absolutely. for your Upspiral leadership. Forever, John. <laughs> Thank you and thanks to your listeners. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Upspiral Leadership. If you enjoyed this show and want to join us in co-creating change, please email us at upspiralleadership at gmail.com. You can also support the show by leaving us a like and review on Apple Podcasts or by sharing this episode with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again and stay inspired.